very small, of course. The Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time sticky seaman, Andrew Raphael. They call me Seaman Stains. <laughs> Here's my friend, Twink Tucker. And for our latest episode, we're reviewing James Cameron's surprisingly pro-global warming movie that makes Glacial Ice the villain. <laughs> That's right, we're plunging deep into Titanic. A film that at 25 years of age is now just old enough for Leonardo DiCaprio to break up with it. <laughs> but does James Cameron's epic leave us feeling like kings of the world? Or do our hopes and dreams go down with the ship? Find out after the trailer. Take a journey. Back in time. In search of a mystery. Locked beneath the sea. On December 19th, you will be given the key. We're going to America! Oh, forget it, Boyle. You'll never get next to the likes of her. Don't come any closer. I'll let go! No, you won't. You are not to see that boy again. I'm the king of the world! That made you think you could put your hands on my fiance. It's not up to you to save me, Jack. They've got you trapped. If you don't break free, you're gonna die. It's a ship. There's no so many places she can be. Find her. Iceberg, right ahead! Lower the wave! The water is freezing and there aren't enough boats. Half the people on this ship are going to die. For God's sake, there's women and children down here! Let us out so we can have a chance! Where are you going? What to him? You jump by, jump right! I hope you enjoy your time together! And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death. From the mind of visionary action director James Cameron, a man who's had more wives and made films in the last three decades, comes <laughs> Titanic, 
a horror film about a 104-year-old woman forcing a group of strangers to read her erotic fan fiction. <laughs> I made myself laugh with that one when I wrote it. Yeah, the twist and it's all it doesn't did happen. She is the crazy old woman that they thought she was. Yeah, I've got another one about vampires and werewolves. That's the sequel. <laughs> DiCaprio and Winslet play Jack and Rose, the star-crossed lovers whose affection for each other transcends barriers of class and money. On the doomed ship lollipop, their romance is brought to a screeching halt when their Disney. <laughs> Did you like that one? <laughs> 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 On the doomed ship lollipop, their romance is brought to a screeching halt when their Disney cruise inevitably hits an iceberg. And, just like a Disney cruise, Jack and Rose are forced to jump overboard. <laughs> Oh my god. Not only do these lovers have to overcome the small matter of a sinking ship, but they are required to somehow survive sharing the frame with best supporting actor Billy Zane's wig. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, Andy, it's we, we are now in Avatar country. It's it, yep. by the time that this is released, Avatar should be out or at least on the verge of coming out. And um we were looking at a film to review to coincide. Avatar was certainly one of them. Yeah. But we decided to go for Titanic. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just simply that you don't want to watch Avatar again. <laughs> yeah. Well, we went from Avatar to Dances with Wolves, Fern Gully, Pocahontas. Oh, yeah. And then uh, we thought, oh, let's scrap all that. Let's just do another James Cameron film. Uh, <laughs> So we don't have yeah. to review Avatar, or even make any mention of it. If we review film, if we review James Cameron films as he releases them, we'll probably get to do one every twenty-five years. Yeah, actually, oh, it's, like, it's more like twelve years, isn't it? It's more like a thirteen-year cycle that he's on at the moment. He's blowing his load now. He's been. It's, it's like tantric sex. He's been holding it in for twelve years, and then we're going to get a splurge <laughs> of Avatar movies over the next four years. That's it. Yeah. So we are docking with James Cameron for the foreseeable future. Well, we'll see. <laughs> you can never bet against James Cameron, but um, I'm very intrigued as to how this new film is going to do in comparison to the original. There's a lot that has changed in that time, but it will be it will be interesting to see whether it makes that amount of money via different means. I think a lot of people are very interested as to see what's going to happen with this one. I'm putting my cards on the table on that front, and I think... It's going to make a lot of money. Yeah. Looking yeah. at the the latest trailer, how it released, how it became like one of the most watched trailers of all time in such a short period, I still think it's probably going to make quite a lot of money. Who knows if it actually matches the first Avatar, but I do think it's still going to pull in a lot of dough. It may be more along the lines of what Top Gun Maverick did, I think. It'll be interesting to see, because uh, obviously it depends if the, what the film's quality is like, because if it's... Of the same quality as, as the original Avatar story-wise, I can see it doing nearly as well, but not quite as well, because yeah. I think a lot of people in the first Avatar, they kept going back for the experience, which was incredibly unique at the time. Yeah. But we'll see whether that trick repeats itself. It'll be very... Mm -hmm. I'm just very intrigued as to, one, what the film is actually like, and two, how people are going to react to it. 
we're living in strange times anyway because we are living in in an era where a star wars film can flop so you never know <laughs> yes yeah exactly yeah and and we're also living in a post-covid world yes. as well where a lot of surefire hits are suddenly making and scraping around you know 350 million you know that type of region if that yeah and also it's interesting as well because a film like top gun maverick i think succeeded because it was it was more of an old-fashioned adventure yeah and people really took to that because we're you know we're bombarded with marvel movies that are almost exclusively shot on green screen and out you know outside of a few filmmakers there's a lack of real tangible spectacle yes which something like top gun maverick delivered in spades um so it'll be interesting to see how a film like avatar which from the way from the sounds of it sounds like it's even more cg than the original avatar it does but it's, it's, it's very difficult because the, the quality of the CG and everything that's going on with the Avatar films is, is, is head and shoulders above what the Marvel films are doing for many different reasons. So you'd yeah, be interested to see how that, that how that plays out. I think James Cameron in general, we, we see it with Avatar, we see it with Titanic as well, is that when it comes to technological advancement, when it comes to things like CG, he is way ahead of the game of even like other people that like influenced and inspired the whole technology people like george lucas you know and peter jackson yeah, yeah he still somehow manages to make these films and they feel far more real or creative when it comes to capturing the cg or presenting it or that type of thing but yeah that is a conversation for another day let's bring the conversation back down to titanic now titanic is a um is a film that i think practically all of our listeners will have seen at some point or at least heard of do you remember the whole titanic thing like do oh, you remember yes. the, the the i mean it was 97 so we weren't that young kind of thing no. we were about 10 or 11 years old can you describe just what the atmosphere was like when this film was released yeah i mean i remember titanic took up most of 98 and 99 like school life wise yes. because it was it was one of those films that was everywhere you couldn't get rid of it it definitely captured the cultural zeitgeist much more than Avatar did. Uh, and when we go into the numbers, we'll probably compare the two because it's interesting. They're very much like a pair, but I would say Titanic's more of an end of an era film. I, I would agree, yeah. Um, I don't know about you. At the end of each term, you'd have those couple of days at the end of each term where people would bring a video in. And it was always that double box set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd that always. Titanic double box set with two VHSs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and well, it was that funny because um, at the time Fox started doing those weird video cases that were very streamlined, they didn't have any edges on them. Uh, and I remember the Titanic yeah. video in the blue box. Was, or it might have been a blue box or a gold box. It was one of those. They, they kind of tried making videos look fancier at that time, like just as video was about to die out. But literally for about a two-year period, all the girls in in the school, when it came to the end of turn time, you could guarantee they had a copy of Titanic in their bag uh, and it was just ready yeah, to come yeah, out. Exactly. So interestingly, this is the first time I've seen Titanic. One, not on video, because I've never seen it on DVD and two all the way through because i have seen the film several times over but always out of sequence it's always been bits of it really yeah that's quite surprising actually for this episode had i known that i think i would have watched this sooner with these up. i think the only part of the film i've never actually seen at all is the first 15 minutes never seen that at all all the yeah. stuff with brock and everything i've never seen that so we start oh, wow. uh, for my viewing of it i think because people like 
like especially I imagine teenage girls couldn't be asked with that bit, so they were started from the um from the nineteen twelve yeah, yeah. section. <laughs> from the beginning of the flashback. Yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, from the actual beginning of the story, the framing device is secondary. Yeah, and, and even for me, like even watching it out of sequence, but having watched it so many times that I could piece it all together, it always felt to me like it was a film of two halves. Yeah. I remember enjoying it, but never really connecting with it in the way that a lot of people were. Yeah. And I just remember getting sick of the fucking song. You know, that song can fuck yes. off. Yeah, that's an issue um, for it's me. A, it's very much like um, Robin Hood and the Prince of Thieves, uh, everything I do, I do it for you, that kind of thing. <laughs> there, there was a... Hold that thought. <laughs> yeah, that's my general experience with Titanic. And then following its video thing, I, I never had the urge to to buy it on DVD. I think I just bought it on Blu-ray as a courtesy, like just to be a completist, because... Not all James Cameron films are available on uh, high on high definition, <laughs> so um, yeah, and and so when they are, it's a privilege. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so <laughs> snap it up before it goes or it gets converted into something else. I know that they're um, they're gearing up to release Titanic in February, apparently, for the like twenty fifth anniversary. They're releasing it for Valentine's Day again. I'm worried that it's going to be in that higher frame rate three D thing. That they've just released uh, the latest, like the last Avatar film. With. Yeah, probably will be. So, <laughs> once more, snap it up while you can before it turns into something completely different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the one good thing I can say is that the um, the cleanup job they did for the Blu-ray that in order to get the 3D version originally, they did a really great job actually of it, um, making it look as good as it can be. Well, they did the right thing by essentially separating the 3d conversion and the cleanup restoration yes. um so the the restoration was done first um and then the 3d was brought in afterwards really so they, they approached it as two separate things rather than it tying it all within the same yeah. process yeah because i think john landau says that prior to that they didn't have a proper digital master of the film um, which, is them, which is fucking crazy yeah absolutely boggling Although the, the turbulent production of the film may explain why. And also the yeah. fact that I don't think... Was it released on DVD initially? I think it was... Was it not until 2005 that it was released on DVD? Um, yeah, it came, it came much later yeah. on DVD. Um, at the time, I remember Fox were pushing it out with various um, special edition... I mean, do you remember all the different types of boxes that you could you could get all the different types of versions on VHS you could receive yeah, this film. Yeah. So you had your normal, like, um, your gift boxes that had, like, the soundtrack and the making of book included, which is the version I had. And that came in, like, a real big, thick cardboard box, and I had that on the top of my shelf. But you had all different kinds of versions, like the Valentine's Day edition and this type of thing, you know, like, get a special pink box. And for my experience of Titanic as well... Um, the first time I remember it being a film was... I can't remember what it is that I went to see at the cinema, but I saw the trailer for it beforehand. So the trailer for Titanic. And that trailer, that, that last shot of the Jack and Rose on the back of the ship as it starts to go down, and you hear Jack say, this is it, is burnt into my memory. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, holy shit, what is that? I remember mum and dad saying the same. like, And then it was released, and... I went to see it five times at the cinema. Oh, wow. And it was the first film I went to go see five times. And it was one of those things as well. Everybody said that they cried and everything like this. And I was a kid, yeah, I cried too. <laughs> I didn't really, but, you know, it just seemed like the, the right thing to say. Peer pressure, guys, peer pressure. Yeah. 
There's also a story that my dad tells of the time that he took. I I have two brothers, and my uh, my dad took all three of us to the to the cinema to go watch Titanic because my dad went to see it about three or four times himself as well. It's one of it's one of those films. Isn't uh, well, it? it felt it felt like see it at the cinema while you can because this is it's <laughs> going to like video getting, soon. <laughs> yeah, it's going to video soon. But this was like. Um, it's like a Gone with the Wind or like a David Lean epic or Lawrence of Arabia yeah. where it's like people are going to talk about when this film was released. But just to speak very quickly about my watching it with my brothers, I, my dad likes to tell the story that while he was there with us, we were a handful when it came to going to the cinema. And uh, we're only a year apart, each of us. So, But we had like 12, 11 and 10 years old. And his story is that he's just sitting there at the... Uh, uh, in a different seat to the rest of us, watching the film so that he can enjoy it. And then one of us, I think it was me, who uh, walked up to him and said, uh, Dad, Jack says his eyes are bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dad went, what? He said, yeah, Jack says his eyes are bleeding. And he just went, go sit down. It's like, do you mean he's crying? Can you imagine seeing our little Jack crying? Oh. And he's like, no, no, I'm not crying. My eyes are bleeding. <laughs> Sit down and shut up. Go sit down. <laughs> Get out of it. But yeah, it was like it was inescapable at the time. Yeah. I say that about most things, but uh, Titanic really was like the big mega hit of my childhood, really. I loved it. I loved seeing it at the cinema. It was like my favorite film for that period of time. Obviously, I was more tuned into the second half of the film. Yeah. yeah. Being the James Cameron action head that I was. But I didn't mind all of the other stuff. And... For some reason, like the bit that always sticks with me, like the the bit that gives me goosebumps now when I think about, and when I was there in the cinema, I, it blew me away. Was seeing the engineering room with the giant mechanical pistons in motion in scale against these tiny engineers looking up at them. I was like, it blew me away. It felt real, and it felt like even something as simple as that. I'd never seen anything like it before. Kind mm. of thing. It felt like. It was all real. Yeah. That was the shot that brought me into the film, actually. Like, I, I was suddenly there. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's my experience with Titanic. I mean, we have, like, a whole period of time following the release of this film where it's had something of a turbulent reception. It's been the best film that's ever made, then the worst film that's ever made, <laughs> and suddenly we're in this kind of, like, settling period now. Yeah. Where it's neither. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say to put my cards on the table... I still love this film. It feels like the last of its kind in Hollywood. I mean, like getting into like Lord of the Rings and that type of thing, as much as I love those films, they feel like the beginning of something else in Hollywood with the whole idea of like bringing in the massive, the technology that was used, the like, especially when we look at Return of the King. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the giant battle scenes. It feels like the beginning of something else. Like I can draw a line from the Return of the King battle, which is so much better than Avengers Endgame, but I can draw a line from there to there kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You could probably say that it's, it's all a transitional phase. You're still talking about films that um, extensively use models and the CG yes, is yeah. either helping out with that or equal to it. It's not the be-all and end-all. It's used mm. as it probably should be, as a tool in of itself that can do certain things, but then they rely on models which can do certain things better. It's, it's a really good... At this time, there's a great marriage between the new technology and the old technology, and then later on down the line, that gets thrown out of whack quite considerably. 
and and uh, James Cameron himself is involved in all that. But yeah, this is a really nice balance of of everything. It, yes, and it, yeah. it does feel, even though there is a lot of new technology in there, it definitely feels more akin to old fashioned movie making. Yes, and like I said, I had a theory about this. I feel like this is an old fashioned Hollywood epic that's made for people who don't like old fashioned Hollywood epics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a very much like a love-hate relationship with this film. Well, that's why I was excited to to do the film yeah. and the podcast because I think both myself and you have two very different opinions of Titanic. And I, it's it's a film for me that I've revisited many, many times over the years because uh, I, I actually find myself very fascinated with the history of the ship itself mm-hmm. as well yeah. and the actual sinking and the wreckage as well. I somehow every, I would say, three or four years fall down a black hole of suddenly thinking like, oh, I've got to find out everything I can about Titanic and I'll watch every documentary I can get my hands <laughs> on. And then this film obviously comes up during that period. Have you ever seen Ghosts of the Abyss? I have, yes, yeah. Because that's actually, I think I watched that when it came out originally. I remember really enjoying that and thinking it was better than actual the film of Titanic. <laughs> because <laughs> um, it was a bit more um talking about the ship itself and everything so and of course it's got bill paxton in it so you know of course yeah he's like the main character in that one the thing about ghost of abyss that gets me about it is it's more like the apology tour because it seems that, like there's an entire section which is quite dominant in the uh documentary dedicated to, to the uh first officer murdoch a yeah. character who <laughs> yeah. in the film is shown in a very negative light yeah who was actually something of a hero on the ship itself yeah. so they dedicate quite a significant portion saying we're sorry <laughs> to the family of first officer murdoch we're sorry yeah we're gonna make a documentary about how great he was <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do like ghost of the abyss it's a it's a very good documentary yeah it's it's, it's got this weird as well kind of like um recreation thing though where like you have bill paxton and a few of the characters acting on set like they're uh yeah yeah they're seeing the wreckage and stuff for the first time rather than actually capturing the true reactions to that <laughs> yeah because i remember i did i remember seeing an imax and it was uh oh that must have that must have been good that must have been amazing yeah i think i saw it you know the um these were the days where you could only really see imax it when if you know if you went to bradford the national film and television museum and that's when you'd see imax films back then were about 40 minutes long and they were just always special subjects yes rather than you know full-length feature films and yeah that was i think that was one of the last times i went to see an imax film like that and then shortly after they started showing like either up converted or films that were shown in imax on the imax screens around that site of time sort of mm-hmm. early to mid 2000s everything like that started to change with IMAX, and it became a much more mainstream format. Yeah, I mean, the first film that I saw on IMAX was just a roller coaster. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. like a CGI roller coaster, and we were all sat in our seats going, wow, it's like we're really there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It makes me feel like that that very first audience that saw the train moving towards the screen <laughs> yeah. now, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> wow, we! Holy shit! Running out the screen because I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> God, how naive and young I was. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's strange going back to this film after all this time because yeah, it's always always for me been one of those films that's, that's out there. But I've never really had any kind of great urge to go back to and and look. And it's strange because I do enjoy it when it's on, and I would love it a lot more were it not for certain things in the film. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know whether I should sum up my sort of feelings about it. There's about a five to ten minute section in the film 
it's during the the middle of the sinking when it's just focusing on the the string players and the crew, and I think that's where the captain decides to go into uh, you know into the bridge and everything like that. Yes, yeah, it's like my favourite part of the film. And it's it's the part of the film that doesn't really feature Jack or Rose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it shows you my feelings towards the film. That kind of like sets us up on on where I imagine most of your criticisms going to lie mm. with this. <laughs> Which, to be fair, is, is I mean, I will say it's it, it's clearly something that people have drew criticism with, but it's not something that's particularly ever really bothered myself. I I like James Cameron. In terms of his filmmaking and writing, flaws and all, even in regards to his very cheesy, um, you know, character archetypes that he likes to use. Yeah, yeah. And uh, his cheesy dialogue, I, I am there one hundred percent for that. And this is certainly James Cameron at his peak when it comes to cheesy dialogue and uh, cheesy character interactions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is an excellent sequence and to be honest i wrote in my notes on this watch that one of my favorite parts of the film just before we go into the context we may as well provide this as well is that during the sinking there is a moment of quietness almost where jack is in handcuffs in the room and rose is forced to leave the room to go find a way to help him escape and we have this five minute sequence of her just wandering the flooding corridors on her own yeah yeah. As the Titanic creaks and groans around her, the lights flicker. The thing that we can hear most is the water rushing and her breath. There are no words said. It's just this moment where we get to appreciate what's happening before it does. Mm. And it feels like, like Titanic is a living, breathing. Like It's almost like being in the belly of the whale. Yeah, yeah. It's just this moment of pure dread. And that is probably my favourite moment. And then she returns back to Jack and that storyline continues. But it's just this moment where he lets us appreciate the enormity of what's happening before it really kicks off into the next gear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because from that point onwards, it doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. That is the, like the last breather that I really appreciate about this film. But that's my favorite scene. That's my ho- my favorite sequence in the entire film. And once more, it's one where like the film just stops for a second to, to allow us to appreciate something else. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, before we get into the film and our opinion of it, let's go through some of the context. Now, um, anybody who's listened to our The Abyss episode will know that James Cameron has a love affair with um, everything to do with deep diving exploration. Yeah. He says in a documentary for Titanic that this was what he did before he became a filmmaker. He's been a deep diver for longer than he's been making films. Yeah. I won't say what he's been deeply diving into. (laughs) That's for James Cameron to tell the judge. So, and as we mentioned in that episode as well, we get this kind of glut of deep sea movies during the, uh, the post Titanic discovery, because in my opinion, like when I was a kid, I think I took for granted the fact that we could see very readily like available there was Titanic pictures of the wreckage itself because for me it was just always there. It's like the moon landing. Yeah. yeah. You're like, of course we landed on the moon. That was that was ages ago. Yeah. It's just something that we always did. And Titanic for me was something that was always there. I've only come to appreciate later that actually when I grew up, we had, it was still a brand new discovery. It was still something we were figuring out. And it was something that was very much in like the public's consciousness at that time. It was a, a source of endless intrigue, um, obviously because of the tragedy surrounding that. And James Cameron had that connection to it. And he he often jokes that they made Titanic 
as an excuse for him to explore the wreckage. Yeah, yeah. Like, he had to make this $200 million film, which was massively over budget, mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the biggest films of all time, and he had to make it just so that he could go down there and explore the wreckage himself as well. <laughs> Although I think, in a way, by the end, he'd come to appreciate, or I think he, he even said the Brock Lovett character kind of mirrors his... Him, like, he mirrors yeah. himself in terms of treating it as a wreck and then delving more into the the human tragedy of it and coming to that realization more at, you know as the film production progressed yeah bill paxton said he, he sort of channeled a lot of of that into his performance as brock lovett i mean probably right down to the um ego <laughs> side of it as well i think it shows a bit of humility as well for the director yeah. for a director that is often is certainly not known for his humility yeah and yeah. and yeah how he was probably influenced in the wrong ways and inspired in the wrong ways at first by by the wreckage and yeah it's interesting what you said about it always being there because like you only have to watch films like raise the titanic which were made in the late 70s uh, to realize how much they didn't know about how the Titanic yeah. actually sank because that film's quite, um, mm-hmm. you know, in in uh, in hindsight, quite hilarious to watch because they just, yeah, they get it completely wrong. <laughs> the fact, yeah, the fact they can raise the bloody ship whole. Well, it was like one of the uh, the things again. Something I took for granted was that it was a very hotly debated topic whether or not the ship split into two because some of the survivors mentioned that they were in a a vantage point to see something like that happen, but other people weren't and did not recognise that the ship split. Um, There was a hotly debated topic about whether or not it split underneath the surface. Yeah. yeah. And that's why people didn't notice and that kind of thing. And it's only actually when we came to view the wreckage that that became kind of like common knowledge. Before then, everybody expected to find a fully intact Titanic wreckage. Yeah. I will say as well, like just a touch more history with the Titanic that I do have. I have actually seen a large piece of the Titanic in person. I went to the Las Vegas Titanic experience, <laughs> which was quite, it was, it was spectacular. It was like uh, the largest collection of artifacts and, and like, like there's a giant piece of the side with the portholes and that type of thing, giant piece of the side of the yeah. Titanic that has been brought up to the surface. You can go to just like a couple of feet away from it and view it. And it's just an amazing thing to see. And you can almost kind of smell the sea salt on it. It's because they're constantly spraying it with water as well. You can smell the sea salt. And also from all of the uh, all of the fans of Leonardo DiCaprio, I think uh, you can smell the sea salt. It's very musty in here. Yeah. It's, it's, it smells like a teenager's bedroom. Could someone crack a window? And, oh. um, and the thing that I found out about it as well was that... Cause, I was like, why the fuck is this in Vegas? It's like one of the most precious pieces of this ship that we have that we can tangibly go to see. Why isn't it in Liverpool? Yeah, why isn't it in the, like, the Titanic exhibition in um, Belfast or Dublin or somewhere like that? Yeah, yeah. Why is it not in Liverpool or Southampton or something yeah. like that? <laughs> and the reason simply is it costs too much to keep. Nah. And there's one thing that Vegas has got, and that is a lot of money. And that is why in the Luxor Hotel, <laughs> you can go see a permanent <laughs> exhibition of the fucking Titanic. America, fuck you. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we, we, get a, we get a lot of fucking stick for being like the British Empire. British Empire. British, I said then. The like, British Empire. Yeah. We got a lot of stick for that too. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, get, we do. <laughs> but the British, Brit- I said it again, the British Empire gets a lot of stick for like stealing other countries' artifacts and 
and that type of thing. Mm. But, but g- give us back the Titanic, you <laughs> dicks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, going back to the making of the film, there's also a very famous story of James Cameron with aliens that ties into his pitching style. And it um, also ties into his pitch for Titanic. Now, with Titanic, he just simply went into the um, a board meeting with a lot of Fox executives. He put up a picture of Titanic, a lovely painting by one of the people that was involved with the film, and pointed at it and said, I want to make a vision of Romeo and Juliet on that ship. Now, it kind of reminds me of the way that he pitched aliens. <laughs> Have you yeah. heard the story of how he came to pitch aliens to his uh, to the Fox execs? No, no. So it's a very famous story. And at first, it was just a rumor. And then James Cameron came out recently and did say, yeah, actually, that is true. And it's simply that he walks into the room. He had the Fox executives around. They asked him to pitch ideas for what he wanted to make. He went to a whiteboard... And he wrote down in big letters, alien. And then he put an S at the end. (laughs) And then he put two lines through the S to make a dollar sign. (laughs) And that was the opening of his pitch. Was aliens with a dollar sign. Right. All in like complete silence. And he said, yeah, that's something something I did in my my ego. I mean, yeah, some of these stories don't quite... I mean, if you read the Wikipedia of Titanic doesn't quite play out like that um, as written down because yeah. it sounds like he did that story, but the Fox executives were like still very like, okay, we can do that. And it sounded like they greenlit the film more because they wanted to continue their relationship with James Cameron yeah. in the long term rather than they were like completely bowled over and enthusiastic about this concept because from the very beginning they thought ooh this could lose a lot of money yeah because you're talking about James Cameron who was the sci-fi action guy and doing a period piece with a a very prominent love story probably felt like a a huge risk because there was no track record for it yeah a film like that hadn't been made for quite some time so and it involved so many elements that are real red flags for executives at studios for example we look at water-based movies at the time. We look at that whole glut of those uh, films that came out around the same time as The Abyss and how they failed. And we also look at films like Cutthroat Island and Adventure at Sea kind of thing. And Waterworld. Oh, Waterworld, <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. It has a lot of the kind of hallmarks of a classic disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. So I can see why there might have been cold feet with regards to giving the film the initial green light. <laughs> and even The Abyss as well. It's like, oh, so you want to do another sea-based movie again? Hmm. Yeah. That turned out great last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we talk about the making of the film as well at the time. I, I, I really have... I watched the documentary. I've written loads of notes based on that, but a lot of it is just tied into my thoughts of the film as mm-hmm. well. But with regards to context at the time, I guess one thing that we can really discuss as well is just the absolutely turgid previews that it had in the press. It was like a lot of people had their knives sharpened for this. Mm. It, For example... It was a film by a director who was a known ego. So, you know, the the media at that time are kind of waiting to pull him down. He has a history of being somewhat hard to work with on set, or, or at least being a hard worker that demands a lot from his crew. I, I, we spoke about this in the past as well. It's earned in some respects, but not in others kind yeah, of thing. He yeah. doesn't expect anybody to do something that he wouldn't do himself. 
and it was the biggest budget of all time for that period of time as well. The the modest amount of two hundred million, which yeah. was like grossly over over budget. But then again, James Cameron had broke ground like this before in the past with Terminator Two. I believe that was the first one hundred million dollar budgeted film. Yeah, yeah. Which is crazy how we double how they doubled that in just a very short period of time. <laughs> like yeah, it took yeah. us it took us a hundred years of movie making to get to a hundred million dollars, and then it took like five more years to get to two hundred million. <laughs> I'm just gonna look at what two million dollars is now. I, I, I imagine it's not quite double based on what we were uh, discussing last week. Three hundred eighty million. Oh wow, it's quite close. Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, that, we're talking about like the Amazing Spider-Man Two numbers there. Yeah. <laughs> and look what they came up with that film. Every penny's on the screen with that film. We're talking the last Pirates of the Caribbean movie, right there. <laughs> Do you remember any of like the negative press about surrounding this film before its release? No, but I, I don't remember reading Variety at the age of eight. So. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. But um, that, that's the thing. I read Empire like around I'm, that age. I don't think I got so, into reading Empire properly probably until about ninety nine. So I was probably a bit yeah. later. So in terms of like actual film production, it wasn't something I particularly followed at the time. But I do remember reading at that time a little bits of the negative press that it was getting, and it reminds me very much of like before Avatar. This is why you know this is where the don't bet against Cameron logic yeah. comes from the uh, the rationale because for the last three films, it seems like there's been a uh, a vocal portion of the cinema going audience that has been somewhat pessimistic about his particular film's chances yeah yeah currently he's two for two and we're gonna find out if he'll be three for three by december i think you've also got to take into context the other films that he's involved in but didn't direct so the film prior to titanic would have been strange days which flopped quite hard yes and then you've got to mention you know alita which was going to be a james cameron vehicle and that you know ended up being made by robert rodriguez from his script and that didn't do amazing either so yeah it's strange that most of the other projects that james cameron's involved in as a side project don't do so well but then his actual helmed films seem to do very well but we will see yeah it's yeah it's um Filmmaking is a gamble, but you're talking about someone who who hit, hit the jackpot twice. We'll see what happens. If filmmaking is a gamble, and James Cameron is a what do you call them high rollers? Yeah, <laughs> that's what you've got to expect with him now. And I, I like that there's still a filmmaker of his caliber still doing what he does. But yeah, let's leave the context behind yeah. now. I'm sure we'll fold a lot of that because we'll talk about things like the uh, how they made the film as we discuss our yeah. opinion of it as well yeah, as yeah. we go along. But for me personally, I'm going to say straight from the off that Titanic represents peak James Cameron. And that is mostly almost for me, like overwhelmingly for better, but also for worse as well, because it has, it's the perfect culmination of everything he does right and the things he does wrong as yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> it's the encapsulation of him as a storyteller and as a showman. He says in the documentary that he always wanted to be a populist director. Yeah. And this is something that always gives me a red flag when I hear directors say this. But he made movies for the fans. <laughs> I make the movies for the audience. It's like the moment that like a superhero movie comes out and does terribly. Like Morbius comes out and Jared Leto's like, well, this film's not for the critics. <laughs> it's for the fans of Morbius. <laughs> They're over there around that table. It's Morbin time. Oh, God, can we get Morbius on a Titanic, please? <laughs> Actually, Jared Leto was was one of the people that was uh, in the lineup for uh, Jack, wasn't he? He was. Um, yeah. He was one of the people that was being considered. 
So rather interesting, a lot, a lot of people turned this film down. It wasn't one of those films that people were like scrambling to uh, get cast in. Do you think it was just like the idea that, well, this sounds like it's going to be an absolute fucking ball ache, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Titanic, oh, that sounds interesting. Wait, actually, that sounds like about six months of night shoots submerged in water with the shouty man <laughs> with a very shouty man <laughs> yeah. wait are you talking about dicaprio or james cameron there because <laughs> we have two very shouty men yeah well uh james cameron of this day and also yeah it's one of those films where it's like oh it's like opportunity to work with, with james cameron but oh, it looks like it's probably going to be a bomb don't want to spend all that time on a on a film like that uh, feels like a yeah. relic of a of a bygone era. So there's a lot of big names that were brought up, and and most of them seem to have turned the film down. Well, one thing to ask on that subject as well, just talking about the cast. One of the um, elements that always comes up as something of a criticism, almost controversially so, is Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in this film. Yeah. How do you feel about like the performances in the film, and particularly like the Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet performances? Because I know that that's where a lot of like the cheesiness hangs. I don't have a problem with their performance as such. I think a lot of it, and especially towards Leo himself, is directed towards the writing. Yeah, because watching it now, it's very obvious that Rose herself is a very well-rounded character and has quite yeah. a lot of depth there which is definitely brought out by Kate Winslet's performance. But when you get to Jack, although Leo is doing his best, the character, there's not much behind the surface. There's, there's no depth there. It's very much a cardboard no. cutout. Yeah. And I think that's why I've always really failed to connect with the love story in this film, because the way that James Cameron wrote Jack, he's just a little bit too perfect. Yeah, And I can see why he would have written him like that, because he's supposed to be like the guiding light that gets snuffed yeah. out but when you're dealing with a film that's you know three hours long and one of your leads doesn't have any depth it kind of it kind of slightly cripples that part of the film mm -hmm. in a way and it's a shame because i feel if if if, it, if that had been developed better it wouldn't be such a glaring issue because for me mm -hmm. i'm always in a hurry to see what's going on in other parts of the ship and yeah. the other characters and the historical characters and things and, and what's going on. Even before the actual sinking, I'm more interested in, in that than what's going on with the love story because mm -hmm. I, I enjoy watching Rose's part of that story, but whenever it cuts to Jack on his own or when they're interacting and it's more focused on Jack, it's a bit of a vacuum. Mm. And it needn't have been so because the, you know there's a lot of potential in that character to have more flaws and a bit of darkness and a bit of grit. I think grit is the thing that it's lacking for me as well. I, yeah, it's a bit too squeaky clean. I understand why it is the way it is. There is only a short period of time before everything kicks up into the next gear where we get a full romance film, essentially, before the action begins. Yeah, yeah. And I understand that on Cameron's side, he's almost worried about the idea of introducing any kind of flaw to this character because any kind of doubt in this romance breaks the second half of the film in his mind. But I actually think maybe if they had... They've already got the whole class issue to overcome, but maybe if there was also more to Jack as there is to Rose, like internal conflict in him over, over something. Yeah, because for me, the problem is, I feel like this story really should be about them coming together, making both of them better people yeah whereas 
it feels incredibly one-sided. It helps that it is a story that is told from mostly Rose's perspective. Yeah, and I think I think that's probably another reason that because it's it's a a story told in flashback. Is there some sort? You of might like, say it's being told in rose-tinted glasses. Yeah, I mean, God, I I do have issues with that framing device anyway because of the way that the film kind of forgets about it after a while i mean i don't know how you feel about the framing device because i don't feel it really needs to be there i think it's essential (laughs) well it is and it isn't because i kind of find it's quite dull i feel like they should have framed it differently because it's hampered by the fact that they shot it first yeah i mean even at a different dp on on that part of the film that it's um caleb deschanel doing that part of the film i think he had to drop i think he had to drop out before they um did the main unit of shooting yeah but yeah i I forgot i I, because i hadn't seen that part of the film i was like god it's a bloody long time till we get to the actual 1912 stuff i'm not interested in this Mm -hmm. and i do understand why you need to see the wreckage and everything but i think because the film in the editing process throws that part of the, the film away more and more as the time goes on I mean, I think there's a good hour yeah. where they don't cut back to them at all. But I don't mind that. It's we're, we're in the middle of the story at that point, yeah. and any attempt to kind of take us out and back to the framing device would only hamper the film. It's paced weird, though, because like you, you, you get a whole hour where there's, it doesn't cut back to them, and then in the space of about five, ten minutes, it cuts back to them twice. Yeah, it's very choppy in in how it integrates that part of the story into the into the body, considering how much time we spend them with them at the start. All of that stuff at the start, really, what it does is it lays the foundations for what comes later. So during that period of about an hour, there's information within that first twenty minutes that yeah definitely becomes yeah. essential to that point yeah. in the film. And like you say, showing the wreckage, providing kind of like a mythology, this sense of pathos to what's going on. There's, we know where it's heading, but also we don't have a character at that point during all of the chaos that has to tell us what's happening, how it's happening. Although there is a little bit of that, but we don't have people constantly telling us what's happening, how it's happening, what could happen next, etc., etc., etc. It's all being kind of set up in that first 20 minutes. Even just having the CGI recreation of the poorly rendered one that they show on the screen of it like crashing down and and landing at the bottom of the ocean kind of fills in a gap for us and and lets us know that by the time it happens we already understand exactly where it's going and what what's happened there i think if it starts okay and when it goes into it but when it cuts back to it it feels really clunky like yeah and i think it's partly down to how they've edited the film because i don't know whether you've ever seen the deleted scenes i've seen some of them i saw the deleted ending which is hilarious yeah but there's certain deleted scenes surrounding the more historical aspects that I don't feel should have been cut out because when it cuts back to some of the present day stuff, they seem to focus on things which weren't really focused on in the previous hour. Like there's the bit where the um, Lewis Abernathy's character, you know, the sort of the slobby one, yeah. goes like, oh, the captain knew about this and he didn't da 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 And I was like, the film hasn't focused on that at all. Why are you talking about this bit? Like yeah. it doesn't work. If if we just had a bit about that in the previous mm-hmm. like five ten minutes, it would have made more sense. But I'm pretty sure the last scene where Ismay's talking to Captain Smith about speeding up and all that it must have been about thirty minutes prior. But when you watch the deleted scenes, especially with the commentary on it, it seemed like a lot of this historical stuff went by the wayside because he wanted to focus on the on the love story. Yeah. And I can see why. There's definite rationale for that. But there's certain things that I'm like, 
and there's other, there's other things as well that I definitely like. Yeah, they should. That, that was great to cut out because there was like an action sequence that was took it a bit too far. Oh, really? What was the action sequence? It's the continuation of the gunfight. You know, when he's chase when Cal's chasing them, and it's like the most expensive sequence that was sh- that they've cut out of the film because it's the bit where they actually sink that dining room set in the water. Yeah, and it's a whole game of cat and mouse between um, Lovejoy and Jack and Rose. And he kept nipping it back, making it shorter, and it still tested poorly because at that point we're like, the ship's sinking, we don't need an action sequence or any more peril, we've got enough peril as it is. That makes sense. And all it's doing is taking us away from the actual sinking. That's the die-hard portion of the film. It's yeah. die-hard on the Titanic. But um, it's that's where David Warner, uh, his character Lovejoy, that's the last time we see him as well, just before that sequence. So that's the last time we see him is with Billy Zane on the staircase. Yeah, and then the next time we see him is during the splitting of the ship. Yeah, and the, the whole so reason there is, is there is clearly a disconnect there that I've always picked up on. Yeah, because that's how they're separated. Is that David? Like yeah. Cal goes back up the stairs, and David Warner goes into the water to follow Jack and Rose, and that's how they get separated in the story. I mean, you don't you don't notice if it's, if it's not there, I suppose. But there's so many little little scenes like the there's little scenes with the Mar- with the Marconi operators regarding the. Um, Californian, that's what it is, the ship that was nearby. He said, I mean, he cut that out because he thought it would be better to keep the ship feel more isolated. But considering how much he wanted to keep it accurate, it's a big oversight because I feel like that would add more peril and and more like horror the fact that there's a ship not that far away that because of um, human error, really, because it was just the young Marconi operators pissing off the operators and the Californians, so they shut everything down for the night. So I feel like in streamlining this story, there's there's been things that have been, you know, things that they even shot. I mean, it's a, I find it strange that, the, that there's no longer version of this film. Considering James Cameron's made about six versions of the first Avatar. Yeah, I, I, I can appreciate that. It's strange that there's no, like, special edition director's cut or director's edition of this film considering how much money it's made it's bizarre yeah i mean i can understand there being like at least a 20 minute longer edition close on four hours edition of this film i can imagine there's enough footage for them to push that and turn it into a david lean type epic of that proportion yeah especially as they went back and finished all the visual effects for them so you can actually just plonk them in the film if you wanted to uh, and you wouldn't notice the difference. So it is bizarre. I wonder if that's something that we may see of the uh, the re-release in February because they there was a rumour that there was something special prepared for the release of yeah. Titanic in Feb. I mean, the thing is, I get where you're coming from. You're somebody that wasn't hooked by the romance involved. Yeah. So more interested in the technical aspects, the real world aspects of what happened. It's one of those films that can go both ways. If you buy that romance, yeah. it's fine. If you don't buy the romance, then it's kind of a bit of it's a yeah. bit of a frustrating watch. I do, I buy into the romance. I'm you know I'm a romantic at heart, Andy. <laughs> but yeah, I do like the romance. I particularly love Kate Winslet in this film and we'll go into the we'll go into Kate Winslet in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> for that period of time i understand that there's going to be things there are going to be accuracies that are cut out there are going to be things that didn't quite happen that are elaborated on and like there are things in regards to the set design which is amazing the set design is absolutely beautiful yeah. and in, in a way it feels like a 
uh, almost like perfect replica of the Titanic, but there are certain differences, such as the staircase on the real Titanic was actually a bit tighter, a bit smaller, and they've kind of like played on that for this film, made it mm -hmm. bigger, made it more grand, kind of played into the uh, opulence on display in the Titanic. Yeah, There's a quote from James Cameron where one of the historians talks to James Cameron over a microphone and says um, wh whatever that's part of the filming he says oh that isn't quite how it happened the boat needs to do this and James Cameron replies something like yes I know but I'm going to make it exciting yeah I get that as a director you've got to find that middle ground between like historical accuracy and what is necessary for the story that you're telling I mean we've always been advocates of you know a film's a film it's not a documentary yes yeah we you have know, yeah. you've got to take dramatic license somewhere but for me it's like for you it's taken out a, a certain dramatic element yeah i think it's the fact that for me some of the the actual real stuff is more interesting than the fake stuff yeah he did admit that in the editing process in trying to streamline some of this some of the other stuff got weakened i mean it's funny he's actually more honest in the deleted scenes than he's in the main commentary in terms of what he threw away it's like oh i had to do this but it hurts sort of thing <laughs> kind of thing yeah. so and also kill your darlings well yeah and also he was talking about like um billy zane's character as well and i was like oh in the final edit his character feels a bit two-dimensional when it wasn't meant to be because mm -hmm. of those things that are in the cutting room floor which which give his character a bit more nuance well why did he cast billy zane <laughs> <laughs> i love billy zane i do i genuinely don't think he's absolutely fantastic but he is like a scenery chewing villain yeah yeah. Whenever he's required to play a villain, he is scenery chewing, and that's what you get, and that's what you want to see when you see Billy Zane in one of these type of films. Oh, complete with his Lego hair. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I hadn't noticed as much before, but I think it's because it was on the Blu-ray, and you can see it in pristine high definition, that, oh, my God, this is a $200 million film. Could they not have found a better wig for Billy Zane to wear? It, it's like doll hair at, oh, at times, honestly. It doesn't move. Like he, <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> Especially when he's at, in the action scene when he's moving around, it's like he's just like dead on his head. <laughs> yeah, it's really quite funny to look at. Yeah, not a good win. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird film for me because like I really like all the side characters. It's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the supporting cast and the characters that are involved. There are a little. Well, I'll, say, I'll say this. I mean, Jack should be more interesting than he is. Yeah, <laughs> the one glaring omission which makes me laugh every single fucking time I see him on screen is Fabrizio. Because Jesus, you, I was going to say Christ. exact same same one. Yeah. Mamma mia, spaghetti bolognese. Oh, <laughs> it's a me. It's a me. Fabrizio. He's like one of the fucking Dolmio puppets. Fettuccini. <laughs> like you could do a version of this film where you just completely replace him with a a Dolmio puppet. Oh God. And the the thing that makes me laugh is that James Cameron thought he was like Italian, like proper Italian. And was convinced by his performance. And I was like, fucking hell, James. You've not been to Italy any time recently, have you? That's like being uh, convinced that Mickey Rooney <laughs> is a genuinely Japanese genuinely by his performance Japanese. in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, well, I just, I just thought he was. I thought he was one of them. Yeah, I thought Sean Connery had turned Japanese in the middle of the end of twice. I, I thought Sean Connery was pretending to be white. <laughs> Sean Connery was definitely Irish in The Untouchables. <laughs> Much as you love that film, Gareth, he was definitely Irish. Yeah, <laughs> won the Oscar for that. He did. Yeah, of all the films, this oh, is yeah. a performance in The Untouchables. I love it. I love The Untouchables. Oh, <laughs> he is like a cardboard cutout Italian. 
Yeah, he's, in front he's of time. <laughs> like it's not. It's, it's it's less than that. He's like the Titanic's Jar Jar Binks in a way. It's like we're still going home. <laughs> oh my god, that is a great. I'm a cook in the chicken parmesan. <laughs> Talking about, though, the cast, one person I think that we do need to discuss, we've, we've spoken about the character. Yeah. I agree with you that I think Rose is by far the more well-rounded character. She is one who has something internal to overcome as well. She has her own preconceived notions of class and of money and that type of thing that the, they have to overcome. It would be interesting more if Jack had some preconceived notions about her as well that he has to overcome, like yeah. that he comes to, to realise. It'd be nice if they kind of meet in the middle and find each other there. Like we were saying that this is peak Cameron, both the best and the worst, James Cameron has always written his female characters very well. Yeah. And some of his male characters less so. Mm-hmm. And this is like indicative of that i would say yeah we do get that with this film it's like a continuation of that thing i mean even even with avatar people have always said that nateri is far more interesting than jake suli jake suli but i want to talk as well about kate winslet who much like i've mentioned the titanic that it's hard to remember a time when the titanic wasn't a thing it's weird to think that this was like Kate Winslet's breakthrough role like this like she'd been in Heavenly Creatures and yeah. that had gained her quite a lot of significant traction in the industry mm-hmm. but this was her big breakthrough Hollywood yeah. film and she kind of arrives ready made yeah she feels like she belongs there and it's funny that she arrives ready made because she's so English yeah the, the fact that she's arrives fully formed playing an American character is kind of funny in itself <laughs> yeah <laughs> she's synonymous with that kind of Englishness that, you know, international audiences love. That kind of Emma Thompson-ish Englishness, like Richard Curtis Englishness. Yeah. I'm surprised she was never in a Richard Curtis film. No, she feels like she is. It feels like she's, like, that her role's been taken up by Keira Knightley. Yeah, it is strange that prior to this, she, she was only really known for, yeah, like, heavenly creatures and roles on television. I mean, um, yeah, I follow um, Russell T. Davis on, on um, Instagram. And there was a photo on the street. Oh, <laughs> I follow it down the road, especially when I was living in Manchester. I guys. have to keep a certain distance now. Yeah, it's got, I've got a restraining order against Rossity Davis now. <laughs> but yeah, he he had a photo the, taken the other day with Kate Winslet because the first uh, series he wrote by himself was a series was a children's series called Dark Season. Yeah, of which Kate Winslet was a cast member. And uh, for this audio drama that they've done a couple of audio dramas for Big Finish. And they managed to get all the original cast back to do these dramas, and of which she she came back. So, uh, so yeah, it was just interesting because when that photo came up, we literally just decided that we were going to do Titanic, and I, that that photo came up on my Instagram feed, and I was like, "Oh, that's weird." <laughs> so yeah. uh, serendipitous. Yeah, but it is yeah strange that I mean, even Leonardo DiCaprio, in a way, he had done Romeo and Juliet with uh for baz lerman yeah and, and obviously done other movies be- prior to that but yeah like what's eating gilbert great you still got that feeling at the time that the whole jack and rose these characters these actors they were still kind of treated in ways like these are like fairly unknown non-movie star people yeah. in these roles and this is they've hit the big time these are now the stars yes yeah i think she's definitely the one that carries the film yes i think so 
I mean, I, I like Leonardo DiCaprio, and I don't mind him in this film. I know that some people have issue with this period of time in Leonardo DiCaprio's career, where it seems like... I think that's more the thing that was surrounding him. But it also took him quite a long time to be viewed as someone, you know, other than Jack from Titanic. It took him growing a wimpy beard. It did, yeah. <laughs> a wimpy beard that he sports today. <laughs> I remember there was a quite a long stream of films from, like, the mid-2000s onwards where he had that beard... Because he had that kind of teen period, you know, uh, the beach and Catch Me If You Can and everything. Yeah. And then came back with films like Blood Diamond and Body of Lies and Inception. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure the, f the first film he did without Sans Beard was like Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> it took him all that time to come full circle in a way yeah and it is strange because he's so not associated with that now but at the time i think he was trying everything you could tell he was really struggling to get out of that teen heartthrob area yeah and do more serious films mm -hmm. even when he was doing things like gangs in new york there was still that stigma that surrounded him to be honest as well it's um films like the beach and gangs of new york are films in which he was miscast because yeah. of his association with titanic yeah and know that kind of martin scorsese and dicaprio have quite a long history together and it certainly works for films like the aviator which is excellent yeah yeah and he is fantastic in that it really plays to his abilities but then we also get films like gangs of new york where i think that's where he as an actor reaches his limits of what we're to believe mm. <laughs> he can and can't do but then again that is a film full of those type of issues i know that cameron diaz for yeah. example is, a, <laughs> is is another questionable accent in that film yeah i do like leonardo dicaprio in this he is shouty i know that's the thing that people always bring attention to but he's a lot less shouty that i think people give him credit for with this particular film as well one person who I do want to speak of as being something of the unsung hero for this, and I guess it's weird to say he's an unsung hero considering that he won an Oscar, but from the documentaries and all of the behind-the-scenes material I uh, managed to acquire over the years, uh, I think John Landau, as a producer, yeah. he's kind of like Zen yoga <laughs> to Cameron's firecracker. Yeah. And one of the actors mentioned in the documentary, uh, Victor Garber, that... John Landau was the person that he always liked speaking to most because he was so calm and so collected about everything, despite clearly being under quite a significant amount of stress while making this film. Yeah. Because it was stressful for everybody. I get the feeling that he was instrumental in this, and it's it goes to show as well his relationship with Cameron has continued for years. John Landau is one of those kind of people that you would think, oh, is he permanently on sedatives? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. just so, he's so philosophical about everything. It's like, yeah, I think even, isn't there a bit when he's talking about Alien 3 and it all falling apart on that documentary and he's just like, yeah, ah, oh, you know. It happens. <laughs> it was your first production. Ah. <laughs> uh, you know, things like this are going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, he's like, yeah, he's definitely one of those people that's just so calm and that keeps everything together. He's definitely one of these people that's like instrumental in making sure these wheels don't fall off the cart. Because, yeah, Cameron's just like a proper firecracker. Like, if you get him in a bad mood, fucking hell. <laughs> exactly. I think even James Cameron has, has taken a page out of his book over the years because the reputation he has now as a director and always made far less he's apparently a far more calming presence on set from what i've heard well i had a theory about this given that this film on a physical production level is probably the most extreme he ever got mm -hmm. i feel like the decision when he went to make avatar 
and really cut down on the live action filming and develop all these tools was a way for him to get away from all that kind of scale and and dealing with the physical rigors of production. So I think in a way it was almost like if I'm going to make another film, I don't want to make it like this again. Yeah. And I think that's maybe the reason why he stayed in Avatar World for his own sanity. (laughs) Although he he is talking that he wants to to make other films now, which is a a fucking relief to be honest, because I'm, I I mean, I will say I'm I'm very much looking forward to Avatar 2. Yeah. And of the two of us, I'm certainly the more optimistic when it comes to James Cameron's output of Avatar films. But I want to see other James Cameron films. Yeah. (laughs) And he apparently he wants to make them now. But I have a feeling it's got something to do with his personal life as well. Because if you think about it, I mean, this is the final installment of the saga of James Cameron's Dirty Dick. (laughs) Yes. We're talking about this film as an end of an era. This is the end of an era in a sort of, say, a 15-year period where he makes a film every two to three years. And a big film, you know, after The Terminator, you're talking fairly big films every two to three years. Yeah, he doesn't make small films at this point. And if you think about it in terms of his, probably his, his, his mental health and everything else that's going on, the time that he's putting into these films and all the failed relationships that he's had in that time... It's very yeah. indicative. Do you think? But if you think about the fact that obviously he met his fourth wife on this, uh, Susie Amos, yeah. who plays the uh, the granddaughter character, he met her on this film. They didn't get married until much later, after the whole Linda Hamilton debacle with the fifty million dollars settlement and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But it feels like for someone who's had such short-lived marriages over that time, the fact that the one that he settles down with and is still married to is after he kind of stops that period of filmmaking and goes into, say, more comfortable things like making Avatar, taking his time, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's got to be something in that, I think. And I feel like, in a way, like the the success of this film gave him a way out. Taking a step back and not being involved in that world anymore. Like you say, yeah, probably mellowed him out quite significantly. And also, it seems like his dick maybe dropped off about 2000, so... Uh, yeah, maybe that was it. It finally gave in. And maybe he's a eunuch now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you just look at the logistics of this film and what they had to do and build, like, you know, the fact that they built the Titanic full-scale... He said it was built full-scale. They did take a few sections out to make it a couple of, like, I think it's about 30 feet shorter than the actual I was going to say, yeah, 30 it's feet still actually, shorter. It's, it's, not, it's not like, uh, I think you said, people think mistakenly think it's 90% scale. Now it's full-scale. We just took some sections out to make it a bit shorter, and we hope you don't notice yeah. sort of thing. Because I think you said there's only one shot in the film where they you see the actual deck full length. Because he said they were taking bits out and adding bits as they went along, there wasn't hardly ever any time when they actually had the full setup at one time. Yeah. But the whole thing was built like twice because they had to film it once completely flat. And then the uh, the second time they built it was when it was built at a six degree angle. So they could kind of have it slightly angled and then the rest of it was all down to like Dutch angles. Which is crazy to think that it, like something as simple as Dutch angles being toyed with through CGI. Yeah. But it is fucking seamless. It is genuinely seamless. Oh, it's crazy. There's some really funny stuff as well. Like, obviously, they had they built that end, the end of the poop deck, uh, which goes like almost like 90 degrees vertical. Yes. But in terms of the shots where you see people falling down the ship further when they're skidding down the whole length of the ship. Yes, yeah. That's just filmed on the flat version of the ship with them on little skateboards being pulled by cables. 
Uh, yeah. And when you watch it, it's like, oh yeah, it is. They're totally on a skateboard. But because they've done it in such a way and it's, it's all Dutch angles and it's all cutting really well, you kind of don't notice and you think, oh shit, yeah. they're falling like quite hard and fast. Like, hope they're okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there are even shots as well within the ship itself. The shot of Andrew stood at the clock and you can see all the drink in his glasses at like certain um, angles and that type of thing. And he's, he's leant forward. And I thought that they had shot that on a um, a tilting set. Yeah. And no, it's just a, it's just a Dutch angle. Yeah. It's just a Dutch angle, and they've got the glasses on strings, <laughs> and the liquid that's inside the glasses is actually a gel that is set at a certain angle. Yeah. When I saw that, I was like, "Of course it is. That's so simple." Yeah. And yet, I'd never ever doubted it before in the past. There are all these like little tricks that have been used throughout this film that are so simple, really. Yeah. It's almost like the prestige. Because they're so simple, you start like making them grander than what they are because they get the basics right when it comes to the technical aspects of the film. Yeah. The fundamentals of filmmaking, of big budget filmmaking, because they get them right. It's something that I can imagine like with a Marvel film, for example, it's like, oh yeah, we'll we'll do it all with CG. Yeah. <laughs> It'll probably end up costing a shit ton more for like a shot like that. There's that shot one in the it's one of the restaurant scenes where it's like he promised them that he wouldn't build a full scale set for this particular scene because I think it's only used once. But because they had to like build the model of it, green screen it, and then composite it, he said it probably costed about the same amount of money <laughs> to do. <laughs> Again, that is something that amazed me watching the documentary. Um, I hadn't seen that before, that they actually just use a quarter-scale model as the background for a series of shots in this film. It is one of those effects that you wouldn't notice if you didn't know, but when you do know... Unless you're looking for it. Yeah, if you are looking for it, you you can tell. It's still pretty good, to be fair, considering it's, it's still, like... It's still fairly early days in the, in the using green screen and yes. digital compositing. You know, we forget that this film was predominantly made in 1996 and early part of 97. Well, that's it. They, they say it was. Um, it went in. They began their journey on in December 94, and then it was released in ni- December 97. Yeah, yeah. But that itself also, like the film, got pushed back in terms of its release date. That's something else that I remember yeah. about this film uh, that it was supposed to be a summer film, a summer release. It was supposed to be like June. Yeah. And then when it eventually got its big release, I actually thought that when it was released at Christmas, that we had just, as as was often the case back then, we had just got it late yeah. in was, the UK. Was this the film that started that trend? Of the Christmas blockbuster period? Yeah. I'm wondering whether it was. I'd have to go back and look. I think I think it could be. I, I mean, talking about like Christmas, like this film for Christmas as well, uh, one of my most vivid memories is I saw this the Christmas that it was released at my local cinema. And then a year later, in terms of its lasting power, it was still on the cinema the following Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it just had so much power in that regard. But yeah, in, in regards to those sets, there's also another fantastic miniature set that's used. And I noticed it for the first time, really, on, on this watch through. And that is when you have the moment where the Titanic strikes the iceberg and you get a couple of quick shots of the hull being breached by seawater. Yeah. And it's like it ripples straight across the hull. And that is a quarter-scale miniature. And again, this is just so simple. They built a quarter-scale miniature, then they put a high-powered hose in a car, (laughs) and they drove past the miniature, firing the (laughs) high-powered hose at the miniature from the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And that is what they ended up with. And it's such, again, simple shit that's just... 
elevates the film so much further. Yeah. I mean, it is a $200 million film, so you get like the best of the best when it comes to model makers and that type of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think more films could benefit from that kind of usage of practical effects as well. I mean, we often say on this podcast that like you know bemoan the fact that miniatures and matte paintings and things like that aren't used anymore yeah. in the way that they were back then it's strange like because i think so much was made at the time about the titanic's digital effects with all the digital water even though Waterworld had done it you know two years prior yeah it, it, there was so much made of you know like the digital doubles and things like that mm-hmm. that i would say probably a good 70 percent of this film is probably model work rather than digital Outside, especially outside of the um, of the water. Yeah, it is strange. I mean, this is it in terms of James Cameron using all the techniques that he'd used. From his Roger Corman days. Yeah, since the Roger Corman days. And also, uh, simple works best, that kind of approach. Yeah. That all goes out the window after this film. It is strange because, like, you know, when you think about God knows how, how complex this new Avatar film's going to be in terms of its CG. The shot that sold me on the new Avatar that made me suddenly excited is the shot of... And it's been talked about on that kind of like special effects artist reactive videos and that kind of thing. But the moment I saw it in the trailer was just Jake Sully's hands in the water as he's tightening a saddle, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. It was just the way the water rippled, the way it was uh, like reflections on his hand. There was just that moment when suddenly I didn't think I was watching CG for a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, like it just suddenly snapped where I was like, that was real. Yeah. I'm very interested to see how the rest of the film compares in regards to that, whether or not it has that kind of feeling throughout or it's more because you have your hero shots and that's clearly one of them where they wanted to kind of show something to sell their new water effects. I'm excited now to see like how the rest of the film plays on a technical aspect. I'm excited to see how how it goes in terms of story. But yeah, I, I do think that Titanic still remains... James Cameron's peak as a director. I wouldn't say, like, I, I don't think it's my favourite James Cameron film, but it's it's the peak of him as a director for everything that he learnt through his common days, for everything that he learnt during the big budget period as well as he moved into films like Terminator 2. And this feels like a culmination of him as a filmmaker. Avatar feels like something new yeah. that he's doing. Yeah. That's completely divorced from this. Yeah. In a way, like Titanic is a film of two halves. It feels like James Cameron is a director of two halves as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're moving into a completely different period of James Cameron films. And even in the films that he's produced, like we say, Battle Angel as well, Alita, that is feels more akin to the Avatar yeah. period of uh, James Cameron's career. I guess we really can't talk about Titanic without speaking about celine dion <laughs> and my heart will go on yeah now i i love titanic i like the story i love the enormity of the ship i love the set work by peter lamont yeah now i even like the score by james horner who is a composer that i have a love-hate relationship with or have done in the past um i do like the score to this film but it is utterly handicapped by the celine dion song that i am so sick of hearing that the moment that that motif kicks in in my brain i instantly go oh fuck here we go i'm so done with my heart will go on i'm so done with movie ballads i'm so glad they don't exist anymore (laughs) yeah they tried it again with um 
Avatar, and it di- it didn't work at all. It didn't didn't take was off. Was it? Was it Alex? No, it wasn't Ale- Alexander Burke, was it? It was somebody else. It was no, some- it was somebody else. It was somebody else that was an X Factor winner. Yeah, it was just that time there, like because Disney films are doing it as well, and there were lots of mainstream blockbuster films. Like yeah, so we had the Robin Hood, Prince yes. of Thieves, Three Musketeers did it. Oh, which one was the Three Musketeers? Now that was a. Uh... It was like Rod Stewart, Sting, and somebody else. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for love, oh for love. Oh, that's the one. Yeah, that one. I got so excited then. Yeah. For Rod Stewart and Sting. Oh, yeah. Uh, was it, yeah. Wasn't it Rod Stewart, Sting, and Brian Adams? Like, they all did it together. It was, yeah. yeah I think you're yeah. right. This was the pinnacle of that thing. Because, yeah, James Horner had done other movie title songs uh, with Will Jennings, actually, as well. Um, like that. Like, um, the, the, the other biggest one prior to that was probably Somewhere Out There, which to me is a better song. Yeah. I always still love that song. I would say so, yeah. I don't even think it's that it wasn't as overexposed as this one. I just don't think it's genuinely a better song. I think there's, there's another yeah. there's another one that's, that he did uh, for Five of Goes West as well, which w- it's not quite as famous, but it's got a great theme, the um, the Dreams to Dream. Dreams to Dream. Da, 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 oh, God, yeah, yeah, I remember it now, yeah. And this is, yeah, just another one. There's something really interesting. I don't, you know, they talk about the show West trailer that they made uh like the five minute sizzler reel that they yeah. made for the um show west convention that really kind of made people sit up and pay attention about the film after they've been trashing it for so long i found it interesting because the music that they use in the in the trailer is not james horner music but it, it tells you all you need to know about james horner's score the music cue that they use in the show west trailer is uh book of days by enya Oh, right. If you think about what James Horn is doing with that score, with its kind of Irish choral influence, yeah. it's just Enya. Yeah, I can, I can hear that now, yeah. building blocks of that score are kind of in that book of days song by enya for some reason james horner was somebody to get for whenever anybody did like an irish or scottish film you know it's like get james horner he'll do an irish or scottish sounding score yeah you know we have it with patriot games yeah or and braveheart as well and it, it all sounds very samey to me and titanic falls into the to the trap as well of having like repeating a lot of james horner motifs that yeah we are very much used to we do get the danger theme it's not as prominent in this film as it is in other films like for example apollo 13 but i quite like the theme and i just wish it wasn't forever tied in my brain (laughs) to celine dion because any moment that it plays i'm instantly taken out of the film now and 
I remember like when I was at primary school and this film had come out and there was always somebody had the CD in their bag and it was always played during like dance class because we had dance class at primary school <laughs> and PE and stuff whenever they put music on in the background yeah. and there would always be some kid that cried because it was so sad you know that kind of thing and it just was I've used this before but it truly encapsulates how I feel about it this was inescapable yeah. like as much as I wanted to get away from this song I couldn't and also I grew up in a, in a household with my brother Danny who's probably listening to this <laughs> he wanted to be a dancer yeah. in his youth and that meant he listened to a lot of pop songs and a lot of... Uh, he listened to this song quite a lot. And there were a lot of variations of this song. Some of them were hilarious yeah. as well. There's a one where, like, it has, like, a, a male element to it where every now and again you hear, like, some male choral singers, I guess, say, like, why does the heart go on? Yeah. And it's just... It's so corny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And this says everything about the song that for a film like Titanic, which is corny as fuck, man, it's like high cheese. Yeah. That song is too much for it for me. Yeah. <laughs> the film makes me feel a little bit uneasy in a way because there's so much made out of the, especially at the time, I think, because there was so much made of the romance and that song and the whole cheese fest of it. And it kind of forgot a little bit about Titanic and the tragedy of it in a way and the second half of the film is so much better than the first half just because one yeah they do focus on that a lot more because i feel like there are bits in the first yeah. half that they kind of really should have focused a bit, bit on it feels a bit it feels a bit jarring because they focus on these character on these other characters so much in the second half we barely get to see any of them in the first half they're kind of almost like cameo roles and then all of a sudden they're thrust uh forefront and center yeah. you know especially people like captain smith and and all that kind of stuff i think captain yeah, smith yeah. gets like one two scenes before that I, I don't know but he is a presence yeah like, it's but, bernard hill and and he is i, I think it's because of his stature as well as an oh, actor yeah. kind of thing he does command a presence on screen i mean that's the thing I, that's why i was saying like all the actors that are, are playing all these other parts are fantastic yeah i mean we've, we've spoken like bernard hill david warner victor garber e even the smaller parts like um Aaron Griffith is... Um, Fifth Officer Low. That's it, yeah. He's fantastic in this, because obviously we knew him at the time as... Um, he was most famous for playing Hornblower. Yes, yes, he was, yeah. In the mid-90s. And I was like, ah, oh, this guy's going to be a star. Unfortunately, ended up starring in 102 yeah. Dalmatians and the Fantastic Four films, so that was it. Uh, he could I tell you what... I'm not a fan of Ian Grufford, but I like him in this. <laughs> to be honest, I think it's more the, the films that he chose. I think so, yeah. But I feel like he's one of those kind of actors who had the right look. I reckon if they'd made a Superman film at this time, he might have, he might have made a good Superman. Yeah, yeah, I could see that, yeah. But every single person playing those historical parts is fantastic. I think that's also another reason yeah. why this film, I got a little bit of, of, of a peek behind the curtain because the guy playing Mr. Ismay, and we've mentioned him before. Jonathan Hyde. Yeah, was somebody uh, in my class at school's dad. Mm -hmm. So he was around quite a bit around this time at school. So I find it interesting when you see people in real life who've been involved in huge films like this, it kind of um, takes that um, you know distance away. Yes, yeah. And, and as well, when, when we got to speak to um, Peter Lamont uh, that time, it's kind of like, yeah. oh, God, this guy did all this stuff, and he's just a guy sitting sitting yeah. in front of you, and it kind of really takes that <laughs> yeah, takes yeah. It back down to earth in a way. 
because I got that quite a lot because there was quite a few famous people's children at my school. And yeah, it kind of really took the edge off <laughs> in a way when you when you start yeah. watching films like this. Because when you're little, especially, there's such a huge distance between mm-hmm. the film you've seen on screen. It's like magic. And then when you actually see the people mm-hmm. in real life, it's like, oh, yeah, they're just real people. It's in that way that Christian Bale always talks about making of documentaries where he didn't want them to be included on discs or that type of thing. He didn't like them and didn't like contributing to them because filmmaking is magic. And it would show him in a bad light. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Fucking amateur. (laughs) Well, filmmaking is magic and we shouldn't, we shouldn't, uh, and magicians never tell their secrets, you know? But I was saying before, yeah, I think it's just for me, like the unease, it's like they do the syncing really well and I feel like all this other stuff has kind of, taken a bit of that away like it doesn't get talked about as much as all this other stuff which is like the manufactured cheesy stuff i mean it it is a movie at the end of the day it's got to to tell a story it's there to do what it wants for those characters the the jack and rose thing it is cheesy for me especially during that that ending especially during the the bit where the montages that james cameron always kind of like takes us through during the uh the sinking of the ship I don't think he lost sight of of the real tragedy that was involved here because I think he does ground it. I think he does put it back to earth with yeah, we have the Romeo and Juliet thing that we keep co- we keep going back to, but we also have moments that are kind of heartbreaking for even tiny characters like Jeanette Goldstein's Irish mommy. Yeah, and she's uh, <laughs> yeah, just a, a name the in the credits. credits as that. I was like, what? She, they didn't even bother giving her a name. No, no, I, I know, yeah, <laughs> and but even like the moment of just her putting her kids to bed on the on the ship, yeah. or the old couple in the bedroom, or just seeing the great swathe of people in the water frozen. One of them holding a an infant baby. I feel like he's constantly bringing you back to the tragedy as well. And yes, it's cheesy, and yes, it's got to be a film. It's not. He's not making Schindler's List. <laughs> But I understand that that tragedy has the potential to be something that's treated on that level. Yeah. But this isn't that film kind of thing. Yeah. I think it's for me because I, I think taking it back to like teenage girls having the video in their bag and watching it on end of term day, it kind of, yeah, it's, it's a funny one because it's like without all that, it wouldn't have played on so many levels and transcended cultures and all that kind of stuff and became the huge phenomenon that it ended up being but yeah i feel there was a little bit of a price to pay for that there's a certain kind of trivialization of it that it makes me a bit uneasy yeah but i don't think it's in the film itself i think it's all the stuff surrounding the film i think that's part of the whiplash for this film the backlash yeah i think it was us growing up with it yeah watching it in the cold light of day now it kind of works much better for me than it did at the time yeah and again i still can't quite get over the um the poor characterization of Jack. I think that's a big, like, Achilles yeah. heel of the film. That is something you have to be able to look past, in my opinion. Yeah, I think if that had been improved, it would work so much better. But at the same time, I can see why he was going for that way, and I can see why doing it in that way would probably uh, make it very appealing to teenage girls and stuff like that as well, because he's yes. like Mr. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, his second name could be Heartthrob. Yeah, you know. yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jack Heartthrob. Apparently that was the Jack Dawson that is because there was somebody, I think it was somebody called Joseph Dawson, who was actually one of the fatalities of the Titanic that yes. was, that yeah. was in, the, in the grave site. There are elements like this in, in the film where, for example, as well, the room that Rose has apparently was supposed to be used by jc penny but they had to cancel their 
the voyage on the ship. Ah, right. And so that was an absent room. So that's why she populates that room. Like they've even picked that room based on that story. They don't know who actually had that room. It wouldn't have been gone to waste. Somebody else would have used it, but it's unknown. So they technically in a historical way, get away with having that room for Rose. Yeah. Yeah. I like those little stories like that, where it doesn't really add to the film, but when you find out about it, it's something that like, oh, wow, they, they actually took the effort to do that. Mm, yeah. You'll never notice it while you're watching it, but there has clearly been some thought and some care put into... I mean, and that's what I would say about this film as well, despite its faults. It's very earnest, and James Cameron is a very earnest filmmaker, when it, and is a very earnest, I would say, writer. Yeah. That's why his films are so cheesy. He kind of wears his heart on his sleeve, which is weird, because... He comes across as very masculine, very confident, very like in control. But in terms of his writing, he's kind of... Quite sentimental, isn't he? A sentimental, free spirit. Is He always has a love story, which for him, I guess he loves falling in love. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's certainly done it many times. I'll never fall in love again. <laughs> <laughs> There's always an earnestness there. I would say that the cynicism for this film came later after the release when people started to... Oh, definitely, yeah. ...kind of tailor it towards certain markets, but I don't think it came from James Cameron. And people began to talk of it being a cynical film. I don't think James Cameron is a cynical filmmaker. And when you listen to the commentary and everything, you can tell that he knows, like, a shit ton about about the Titanic and and everything was, like, meticulously researched... And if any liberties were taken with the story, he knew exactly what they were doing. Obviously, even with the Murdoch thing, he was trying to justify it in the commentary. It was like, yeah, there was some of this stuff going on. We did channel it into the Murdoch character, which which we do feel bad about now in retrospect, but it was kind of, we tried to make him more of a composite character. They should have just simply changed his name. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Just for historical reasons as well because of how much that name meant to that family as well it's one of those things where you yeah it's, it's treading that fine line between like we we're saying before it being a documentary versus it being a film yeah and that debate goes on to this day you know people are always constantly debating accuracy of, it of does, films yeah. and, and that's something we'll certainly get into on our next episode as well <laughs> yeah yeah you can you can see that his passion really does come through it's just for my taste i kind of wish they would focused a little bit more on yeah, the Titanic aspect of the film. But at the end of the day, I understand if I'd gone with that way, there was no way that it would be as, as successful as it as it had been. So, uh, you know, yeah. what do I know? And I understand that. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, I think it's because those, those things are done so well, I want more of them. Yeah, yeah. So that I kind of like, yeah, it'd be good if they did do a uh, an extended version of this, which did put some of those things back in, because it's not as if they didn't shoot them, they're there. Mm-hmm. There's you know little bits like the Chinese man balancing on the door yeah. that was historical that they actually did film little things little details that that could be there. The one that made the cut that I'm so glad is in there and they couldn't have taken it out really is the cook going down on the oh, back of the ship. I've reading about that today, hilarious with the whiskey in hand. Yeah, and he was legitimately one of the survivors, yeah. one of the people to be pulled out of the water. <laughs> He was likely the last person that went into the water. And I think they even said that there was a story that was told that when they rescued him, his head was dry. Yeah. Because he simply bobbed up as the ship went down. Yeah, yeah. And the story has always been that he managed to save himself by getting blisteringly drunk. Yeah. Uh, but that that's not how that works. <laughs> <You know? laughs> if, if anything, that would have made it harder for him to survive. Yeah. But he somehow managed to do it. And, and you think keeping his head dry was 
instrumental to his survival. He must have been made of some some stern stuff. <laughs> there are lovely little details scattered throughout the film that I really do appreciate. Just little bits, because there's a bit in the commentary where James Cameron's talking about Bernard Hill and how on set he was like, he's not doing enough. I need to have a word with you. But then whenever they actually looked at the dailies, they were like, ah, oh, shit, it's all in the eyes. He's fantastic. Yeah. He's one of my favourite supporting actors in, in everything. Yeah, you know, anytime he turns up, even in shit films like Gothica. Yeah. You know? <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> one last thing that I just want to mention as well on my side in regards to uh, why this film succeeds for me, um, it, I can really tie it down to a single shot. And that is what's called the million dollar shot. Now, James Cameron called this the million dollar shot. It wasn't because it was so expensive. It was an expensive shot, but it certainly didn't cost a million dollars. But there is a um, the very famous sequence of I'm the king of the world that is the quote. Yeah. And it comes from the scene in which uh, Jack and Fabrizio, Fabrizio! are uh, <laughs> enjoying each other's company on the bow, mm. <laughs> as you might say. And there is this sweeping shot that is... It's just amazing. So the shot, like, kind of, it begins with them. It glides down the decks. It kind of, like, weaves between the smokestacks as well. And then it pulls around so that we can see the ship in all of its, like, enormous glory as the shot pulls away. And the reason that James Cameron said he wanted that particular shot at that particular moment is because he needed the audience to not just fall in love with Jack and Rose, but they needed to fall in love with the ship itself. Yeah. I think there is so much in, uh, of this film that is about the ship itself, the the love of every bracket, yeah, a- every inch of steel on that thing. And from the moment that we every see inch. it... Every inch. Yeah, every inch of steel. Love every inch. <laughs> but yeah, so like from the moment that we see it in dark... And, you know, there are some fantastic miniatures like used as well during that whole segment. Uh, stuff that I just assumed was CGI mm. that was actually just great miniature work. Yeah. From the moment that we see it, this is a love story of James Cameron's camera in love with that shit. Mm-hmm. That goes on straight through to the end as well. That's part of the tragedy of this film. And that is also like one of the major things that wins me over on this film. I like titanic related media i like reading about the titanic i like seeing documentaries there is a lot in regards to the tragedy that and what happened to the people that it just strikes me it gets me in the gut you know and it's it's not just about the ship it's about the loss as well it's about the hubris of man when Mm -hmm. it came to that as well like how they just expected to to kind of dominate the seas with this thing just because it was the largest thing that they you know ship that ever been built the name itself as well and what that implies yeah there's just so much to fall in love with in regards to the history of it. Yeah. And I think that that shot kind of sells the enormity of it as well. One of my favourite, like, little moments, it's a very famous part of the film as well, Um, but it's the bit when Ismay goes to to Mr. Andrews that this ship can't sink, and he goes, she's made of iron, sir. I'm sure she will. And it's like, yeah, that's a pitch-perfect moment in the film and it's yeah it's yeah. a very iconic part of the film and yet yeah, just sums up all the themes of that part of the film um regarding yeah. the hubris and so yeah it's 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 a film i have really kind of mixed emotions with because there, there's so much of it that i love genuinely love and then there's other bits that i'm like if that had been as good as this other stuff it could have been yeah. like i think for me like because it's a it's a film of two halves i'd say 
The first half for me is like a three out of five. The last half is maybe a, a four, four and a half out of five. I used to say that about Titanic. I used to say that like the first half is a three out of five and the second half is a five out of five. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know. I've, I've warmed to the first half. I think, uh, I think I went on that period of time yeah. like everybody else where it was, it was fashionable really not to like this film. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that and I completely understand where you're coming from. I think it's a valid like stand on, on the film as well because I do recognize that there are issues, that there are faults, and James Cameron is a flawed writer. Yeah, also I think it's because it's just such a large part of the film. Like, one of the big flaws is such a huge part of the film. I can't quite overlook it. In your opinion, they should have made Kathy Bates, Molly Brown the, the lead. Oh, Kathy Bates as Molly Brown is fantastic <laughs> as well. Like, the, all these other people are so fantastic. I think she's my favourite character. Because <laughs> all these other things are really well done. It really... Um, highlights how not quite well done that character of Jack is. Yeah. Because Rose is great. No, even her mother is great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Francis Fisher. He kind of sticks out like a sore thumb because he's just too perfect and squeaky clean and on one note. Yeah, everybody else has a little bit of depth, yeah. maybe, uh, you know, dimension to them, even if it's just one or two more things. Yeah. Whereas Jack is just kind of like banging that same drum. I understand that. But I definitely feel like I've come to appreciate it more in this rewatch it's just yeah those flaws still speak out to me but i can forgive them more because i do appreciate everything else that is going on in the film and also we're very much divorced from that kind of crazy period of hysteria so i can look at it as a as its own film hysteria is the word i was searching for earlier that is exactly the summary of where we are where we were (laughs) with that film one thing that may change your mind and perhaps we'll get round to this in in february and not, not so much change your mind but i might say lend more appreciation to the film is seeing it on the big screen because yeah yeah i think that is part of what what i love about it now is also i have to say i do have the rose tinged glasses of of looking through this with nostalgia as well because this film was huge when I saw it at the cinema. It blew me away. And when I watch it now, I'm like, God, yeah, I remember when I saw that for the first time. And that was just amazing. I mean, thinking <laughs> you know? about it, considering what we've been talking about, the like the 3D version, this this is a film I'd rather see in, uh, in IMAX than in 3D. Yes, 100%, yeah. I think they did a, took a lot of effort in making the 3D version, but I, th- I still think at the time it was still criticised in certain areas because it's still like you know at the end of the day it's still a post-converted 3d film i mean the making of gave me some appreciation to the art of post-converting a film into 3d it's clearly something that requires a lot of attention you have to love the film that you're working on and provide it the care that it needs but it's just such a folly yeah it's such a a waste of potential of the the people involved as well because it's just what it adds to the film is not worth the love and respect that they pour into it because <laughs> it doesn't pay off in that way. So, yeah, actually, moving on to the stats and facts, I'm going to begin with the Rotten Tomatoes score with this film. Now, it has an 80% rating on Rotten Tomatoes um, with the critical consensus that it is a mostly unqualified triumph for James Cameron, who offers a dizzying blend of spectacular visuals and old-fashioned melodrama, which is pretty on the ball. It has an 8.0 out of 10 average rating from the critics, which is very high. Yeah. Very, very high. And in regards to the audience, it has a 69% score. (laughs) And 
a 3.3 out of 5 average rating. Now, in regards to the critic of choice, I've obviously gone for the old favourite, Roger Ebert, and he provided this film a 4 out of 4 rating on release. And um, in regards to what he said to, about Titanic, he said, uh, movies like this are not merely difficult to make at all, but almost impossible to make well. The technical difficulties are so daunting that it's a wonder when the filmmakers are also able to bring the drama and history into proportion. I found myself convinced by both the story and the saga. The setup of the love story is fairly routine, but the payoff, how everyone behaves as the ship is sinking, is wonderfully written, as passengers are forced to make impossible choices. Even the villain, played by Billy Zane, reveals a human element at a crucial moment. Despite everything, damn it all, he does love the girl. Now, that is, like, it, it is a gloriously over-the-top positive review from Roger mm -hmm. Ebert. And that was on initial release. Now, this is what he had to say about the 3D version of the film. Mm -hmm. Now, he still gave it 4 out of 4 in regards to the quality of the film itself. But he says, in regards to the 3D, 3D causes a notice noticeable loss in the brightness coming from the screen. Some say as much as 20%. If you saw an ordinary film dimmed that much, you might complain to management. Here, however, you're supposed to be grateful you had the opportunity to pay a surcharge for this defacement. <laughs> if you're alert to it, you'll notice that many shots and sequences in this version are not in 3D at all, but remain in 2D. If you take off your glasses, they'll pop off the screen with dramatically improved brightness. I know why the film is in 3D. It's to justify the extra charge. That's a shabby way to treat a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Now, I wanted to use that as well, just to kind of like contrast... This is somebody that loved the film. Yeah. That 3D yeah. version is, <laughs> as he says, a defacement. Yeah. Yeah. And IMDb, this film has a 7.9 out of 10 rating on IMDb, which I thought was quite high. I was expecting this to be much lower because one thing we haven't really mentioned on the podcast on this episode is that the film had a quite significant backlash, I would say, from like 2000 onwards yeah where yeah. um people were kind of bored with the whole leonardo dicaprio thing and hearing about this film hearing about your heart will go on james cameron says he thinks that a lot of a lot of men that cried at the film wanted to erase that from the memory like felt a bit ashamed by that i think yeah okay maybe but there's also, also other things in regards to just how massive this film was and like you say inescapable it was at that time there was just this major hysteria involved However, in the years since, uh, using the IMDb rating tracker, it has shown quite a significant improvement. So it, in 2004, this had a 6.9 out of 10 rating. Mm -hmm. Even in the last year, it's gone up an extra point, an extra tenth yeah. to the 7.9 rating. So I think we can comfortably say we are beyond the backlash now. Yeah, yeah. And into a period of time where this film is starting to settle again, which, I mean, 25 years later, a quarter of a century's time, <laughs> you would hope it would find us yeah. like a settling area. Yeah. Now, in regards to the release of the film and the box office, this is where we'll we'll come into some uh, familiar faces. <laughs> you just... Come into some familiar faces. <laughs> well, you said that, then. i got to stop saying come into. Just always talking about... You're just talking about coming on everything. <laughs> this is where we're going to shoot into some familiar faces. <laughs> I can't even think of what to say now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was released on December the 19th. Yeah. And it released to number one in the charts. Now, we do see a familiar face at number two, and that is Tomorrow Never Dies, which uh, wasn't the top in its 
open on weekend. It's the only James Bond film never to open at number one. I mean, it's it it's close. Titanic oh, very opened close, with twenty eight point six, and Tomorrow Never Dies opened with twenty five point one. So yeah, it's it's quite close. And what's remarkable at this point is that Titanic, when it opened, much the same as Avatar, it wasn't deemed an immediate success. It was with critics, but it was like. Okay, so this film's made some money. $28 is pretty good. Hopefully it has some staying power and can kind of recoup its costs. Mm-hmm. And then the, second, then the second week. Yeah, then there was the second week and it made more. Which is very, very rare. Especially these days. I think we saw that with Avatar, maybe. Yeah. Or it made very similar to its opening weekend, the second weekend. But I actually looked through the weekend releases for this film. And considering it was released, as we say, December, the last time that it made double figures for over a weekend was on in April. Yeah. And so during that time, it was making double figures at the box office every weekend until April, where it finally dropped to number two against Lost in Space <laughs> <laughs> with 11 million it had. But yeah, this film was a juggernaut. Um, other films that it opened up against were Scream 2, Mouse Hunt, Flubber, Home Alone 3, For Rich or Poorer, Amistad, Anastasia, The Rainmaker, and Alien Resurrection. So it wasn't a particularly strong box office. No, no. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, flubs, as you might say. Yeah. I imagine if you adjusted this for inflation and took in the 3D surcharge into account, I reckon this film probably made more money than avatar yes yeah i think so and especially if you consider it probably didn't play in certain regions at the time although i know it did play in china they didn't it's one of the very rare films to play in china at that time Mm -hmm. but yeah especially the 3d that because obviously 3d surcharge in some places it was like a quarter to a half price you know kind of thing it added that's how much it added massively inflated the box office of a lot of films that released in that 3d craze i mean that's how we ended up getting a clash of the Titans sequel yeah wrath of the titans release the kraken i use that all the time (laughs) that's the only good thing about that film i can't remember (laughs) anything else in fact it's crazy to think about just how long as well that this film stuck about. Yeah. I think that's also part of the issue with yeah, like yeah, definitely. the backlash was just uh, fatigue. I think the fatigue, I remember people on it, like listening to the radio and there were people in like July that had said that they'd seen it every day since it came out. Wow. <laughs> and even I, a movie minded little kid who did nothing but eat, breathe and shit movies. Even I was like, oh, you're taking it too far there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's, a, that's a bit excessive. <laughs> that's a lot of disposable income. <laughs> yeah, I know. I didn't go on holiday this year. <laughs> well, you don't have to pay rent if you live at the cinema. You'd probably like watch the last show of the day and then stay overnight. You know what? I'm not going to pay my mortgage next month. <laughs> I'm going to funnel it straight into my <laughs> cinema-going habit. Watch, you can watch Wakanda forever, <laughs> every day. I can watch Wakanda forever, forever. Oh. Hey, hey. Yeah, so the, the film made during its initial run $1.8 billion. And, uh, but even now it's gone on to make... Uh, well, I'm going like to go into the calculator 2. again now, because that's got to be way more now. So $1.8 billion in yep. 1998 is now 3.3 billion holy shit so it's kind of still like the king of the world you might say easily yeah <laughs> that's the thing you know when you go on like the wikipedia list of like biggest box office films i always ignore the official list and go scroll down and go to the one where it adjusts everything for inflation because that's the one you really yeah. need to look at because that's when you get like I, th- I still think it's beaten by Gone with the Wind because I think Gone with the Wind is like yes, a 3.7 yeah, so, yeah. billion or something like that if you adjust for inflation. For me, 
when you're thinking about how successful films are now and given their budgets as well, you, you've got to take that into account. You've always got to think about inflation because inflation's going up at a rapid pace. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, this film made $3.3 billion on its initial run in today's money based on a $360 million wow. budget or something like that. So That is amazing. Yeah, and that's there's no 3D either, so that's pretty crazy. I, like I say, I'm looking forward to Avatar 2. Yeah. But I, I do hope that we've all learned from the 3D craze and we don't fall for that trap again. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just... Let's not make 3D a thing. I think that's why this release is going to be so interesting because the landscape of cinema, especially big blockbuster mainstream cinema, has changed so much since the first Avatar came out. Yeah, The MCU was very much in its infancy and the whole superhero movie thing was still kind of in its infancy and, and not as prevalent as it is now yeah so yeah it'd be really interesting to see how this does for me personally i'm very much like because obviously that the the, sto- the original avatar story is very derivative of films like dances with wolves and fern gully and all that kind of stuff it's a very simple story with only really one memorable character which is natiri so i'm just very interested to see how how it's going to transcend that original film and move forwards and yeah. whether it just ends up, whether it does something new and exciting, or whether it kind of just does the same story over again, but just on water. That's the thing I'm really looking to, yeah. you know, I'm anticipating. Yeah. But <laughs> never bet against Cameron. No, I never bet against Cameron and his dirty dick. <laughs> in a jar. Yeah, it's, it's like the fly. <laughs> yeah. You know, when he has his, all his extremities on the side in jars. It's like <laughs> but yeah, never bet against Cameron. I'm hoping that the. We have a story on in this regard to match the visuals. I've always said this for the first one is that, yeah, the story is very straightforward. It's very, um, you know, template kind of story. However, that I was, I was very won over by the world and the presentation of that world. Seeing it in IMAX the way that I did, it was kind of blew me away. Yeah. I was still willing to forgive some flaws because of just how much I was won over by it. With the sequel, it needs to improve in those particular areas because it's going people and probably myself as well. People are going to be less forgiving about those particular areas being lacking in the same way if they are. Yeah, definitely. Because I think it's still going to be, you know, I still think it's going to be a visual marvel, but it's not going to have that that same impact. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Because, at the, you know, when Avatar came out, there was nothing you could compare it to. No, there wasn't. You could get away with with the slightly flat characters and, and simple story, whereas now I think it's got to do something more, especially considering it's this is not just a sequel. It's it's a sequel with three more to follow. Yeah, it's a sequel with three more to follow, and it's, in a way, a bit of a legacy sequel as well. Yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculously belated sequel. There, it's interesting because there is, for a film following up, one of the most successful films of all time there is still a lot riding on it cameron doesn't like to take it easy no, he's always got no. to to take there's always got to be some sort of risk involved yeah and in this one it's like if this one fails well a series of films fails off the back of it as well yeah i, I always have to go back to that quote from arnold schwarzenegger i think it's when they're being interviewed in the mid 90s about the terminator films him and james cameron are, are sitting in a room and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger jokes to James Cameron goes, they made the first Terminator for the same cast as my trailer in the second movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, part of me kind of goes, oh, that, simp- that simpler time when, you know, James Cameron made <laughs> yeah. the Terminator for $6 million. 
and we're here now. It's it's such a world away, isn't it? Really, that's um, why we we rarely get filmmakers like James Cameron anymore. I mean, I know he's one in a million anyway, but he is literally a filmmaker that cuts his teeth on the schluckiest of schlocky films. Roger Corman kind of learned his way. So by the time he started making films, he worked his way up using every trick he could to inflate the scope of whatever he was working on. Yeah, yeah. the kind of scale of it, and. I think there are a few filmmakers that do that have that that have that experience that kind of build it up over years so like each film improving on the last one but in terms of technology in terms of um understanding in terms of his filmmaking knowledge he's constantly improving himself to a certain point like say i think he reaches that peak with titanic but there are and i can't i can't think of other filmmakers really that maybe like i was going to say denis villeneuve but yeah maybe like the likes of that but i don't think he comes from the same type of background we don't have the, the the opportunity for those type of filmmakers it's like the all-rounder isn't it yeah i kind of just for me it's just like it's that lamenting of like oh i could have made other films i think that's i think that's yes. a big part of these avatar sequels it's like everyone's like why is he making these he could make other things you know he's got so much talent that why is he bothering doing a sequel to a film that was kind of okay yeah, it is, it is kind of a, it is a weird one. It's one of those things where, yeah, we're only going to really know the answer to that question once the film's out. Yeah. It's strange. I've been, I've been so apathetic towards it for such a long time that now, now it's actually happening. I'm kind of a little bit, mm, a little bit intrigued. A little bit intrigued now. I, I am massively so. And there was a period of time where I, I wasn't asked, and then suddenly I found myself in the last few years, as we got closer and closer, feeling like, okay, okay, I'm interested in finding out about this now. Yeah, bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's all we have time for on this James Cameron-centric episode. Join us next time as we'll be shooting our (laughs) arrows into Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Now, if you thought that this film had some historical inaccuracies, not that Robin Hood isn't a historical epic... But let's just say, geographically, it gets some (laughs) things wrong, maybe. (laughs) But until then, I've been Gareth. And I've been James Cameron's Dirty Dick in a Jar. Glub, glub, glub. (laughs) Thanks for listening. (laughs) 